This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Every year, the South by Southwest Music Conference attracts bands from all over the world. And every year, a certain number are denied access to the U.S. This year, thanks to the Trump administration's attempts to ban certain travelers, more notice was taken of the bands that were turned away at the U.S. border. But were these denials legitimate or biased? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Are you a band who's struggling to run an online store? Let's face it, your bass player is a terrible mail carrier, and you really can't practice when the singer's trying to track down a lost order. Merch Table can help with services ranging from warehousing and shipping to customer service, screen printing, tour logistics, and even marketing. You focus on your art, and MerchTable will handle the rest. MerchTable.com. On today's episode, we start by exploring how foreign bands travel to the U.S. in general, then discuss whether the administration's immigration policy affected this year's crop of South by Southwest denials, and how it might play out in the future. It's all coming up on The Future of What. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Kevin Erickson of the Future of Music Coalition. Kevin, welcome back to The Future of What. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to have you. So today we are talking about artists entering the country to perform. And what I wanted to have you comment on is there's a very recent issue, which was an Italian band called Soviet Soviet was deported after trying to enter the U.S. to play their showcase at South by Southwest. So can you just give us an overview of that situation? Yeah, well, I guess to begin with, this is something that happens pretty frequently that artists entering from abroad run into trouble when they get to the U.S. But I think it got more media attention for a couple of reasons. One is the Trump administration. And, you know, it's certainly appropriate for people to have a new set of concerns about how artists are treated and about how immigration policy is going to work in light of the executive orders that we've seen in light of the overall climate of, you know, there's this rise in hate crimes happening. But then the other reason is that in the run-up to South by Southwest, there were a number of artists that identified some language in the standard performance agreement that was required of all artists. And, you know, it was a pretty sloppily written contract that had some implications you know, it made it look like the festival was essentially threatening to get bands deported, which I don't think was actually their intention. But, you know, like it was it was language that was a lot of artists found concerning and they, you know, mounted a pretty quick pressure campaign and the festival agreed to withdraw that language for future years festivals and also issued an apology. It took them a while to get there, but they did issue an apology. And so I think that sort of like, set up this background where people are paying more attention to this than they have before. What it's difficult to know yet is how much of what's happening in terms of artists trying to travel to the U.S. and the difficulties they encounter is new. So with this band, Soviet Soviet, they're like an Italian, I guess like a shoegaze band. They had the official festival gigs at South by Southwest in Austin, and they'd also 
booked an appearance on KEXP in Seattle. And they've also, their tour also included some club gigs in Seattle and Los Angeles and another one in California somewhere. And what they didn't understand, I guess, and this is something that, that happens pretty commonly, is if you're going to be playing shows, they expected that they'd be able to get to the U.S. and do the, this string of shows using what's essentially a tourist visa. It's a waiver called the, an ESTA, an ESTA, which is available to a select list of countries, but it's sort of like a tourist visa with a little bit less process that you have to go through to get it. It's issued immediately. And if you come to the States on an ESTA, there's only a very narrow set of circumstances where as a performing musician, you can play shows. So what they really needed to have done was to obtain a, a standard work visa, what's called an O or P visa, as musicians generally do when they tour the States. And this is pretty common. Somebody gave the band bad advice and told them that the ESTA waiver would suffice. And that's something that we see pretty frequently. Now, there's also some controversy around how they were treated when they got there. They were detained overnight and because the Seattle airport doesn't have an on-site detention room where they can put them until they are able to get on the next flight back home. They were carted off. It looks like it was a federal detention center that's like half an hour from the airport, so essentially jailed overnight. They were handcuffed, which the Border Patrol says is standard procedure, but seems like overkill when you're thinking about this band of Italian kids. But this is something that happens all the time for people in all different kinds of genres of music and very rarely gets any media coverage. I think it's just because of these unusual circumstances leading up to it that we're hearing about it more now. Well, my understanding of these O or P visas is that like a lot of work visas, they are expensive. They take a lot of time to get. And doesn't that sort of create a real roadblock for young artists who are trying to come play in the U.S. and become better known? Because, you know, I mean, not everyone has hundreds or thousands of dollars or whatever it takes to get these visas. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons that some artists end up trying to skirt the rules or find another way to get in. It can be expensive, and it actually just got more expensive in the last year. There's a set of longstanding issues with customs and immigration that artists have been dealing with really for decades. Some of the problems with USCIS are the kinds of things that are codified in our laws, these high fees, the eligibility requirements that make it difficult for younger artists, emerging artists, to meet the threshold where you're considered a professional, internationally renowned entertainer worthy of one of those P visas. But then there's another set of issues that sort of are about bureaucratic failures, administrative failures. It takes a really long time to get visas processed. Uh, it can be really unpredictable, especially if your application is routed through the office that they have in Vermont. For some reason, they just have this huge backlog. There's two offices, one's in California and one's in Vermont. And if your application goes through the Vermont office, it might take way, way longer than it should. So the, Congress deserves quite a bit of the blame for this set of problems because the agency is generally underfunded and it's understaffed and there's high employee turnover. So the people who are processing these applications, you know, they're not necessarily even familiar with the basics of international touring. And, and that means that even artists who are able to get the money together, who are in a 
position professionally where they've advanced enough in their career where they can successfully obtain one of those P visas, they can do everything right and still not successfully get their visa on an appropriate timeline. I love this in the light of the whole Trump trying to scare everybody to death with this notion that our borders are so open that immigrants are just flooding through every day to, you know, kill and maim. We can't even get bans over here. (laughs) (laughs) Just seems like kind of funny, but not funny. With the new travel ban that's scheduled to go into effect on March 16th, we might see even more problems because, you know, there's artists who live in the countries that are directly targeted by that travel ban. If they don't already have a visa, they won't be able to get one for at least 90 days. But for everybody else, there'll be what are described as, without much detail, heightened vetting and screening procedures. And that applies to everyone, regardless of what country you're coming from. So that also means that there's going to be less flexibility if you do try to go in on a B visa or a tourist visa and you get caught. There's going to be less forgiveness. The visa interview waiver program, which allowed some bands that come over frequently to not have to go through the process of a consular interview every time. There's a, a range of new problems that could come from these executive orders as soon as they go into effect on the 16th of March. There's a set of issues with getting over to the states that bands have been acquainted with because they've been happening for a long time and they're familiar with these challenges and there are ways to sort of account for them. But then this new stuff is all new. We haven't dealt with it before. And so while that new ban may ultimately fall in the court, like the last one did, in the meantime, we've got to sort of account for that ambiguity if musicians are going to be able to continue to come over here. And, you know, I think we should talk for a second about sort of the historical roots of this whole idea of having work visas, people coming from foreign countries to work in the U.S., because my understanding is that the whole idea was to sort of, it was sort of like a protectionist move on the U.S.'s part to say, well, if you're a worker in a certain industry and you're going to come over here and work, you're actually taking a job from a U.S. worker. And that was kind of the roots of this whole, you know, making foreign people have to get work visas to come over here and do a job. Yeah, I think that's accurate in terms of the logic behind work visas across the whole breadth of different kinds of industries. I think the same logic is where the visas for professional musicians coming over here came from. I think that logic kind of falls apart when you think about the ways that music isn't interchangeable. Exactly, yes. Like Musicians aren't competing with each other. You know, there's always this degree of competition between different kinds of entertainment options that people have. An American hip-hop band is not competing with an Italian shoegaze band. And, like, the the uniqueness of, like, the cultural experience that people are bringing is inherent to the craft. You know, that's part of the idea of creating original work. So, you know, like, these are issues that folks in the arts policy community have been looking at for a long time and, and working for change on a number of different fronts, both through direct engagement with the immigration authorities themselves, um, talking to them, trying to help them streamline processes, help them understand the needs of musicians who are trying to come over, help them communicate their policies more effectively, and help on the educational side as well, help musicians know what to expect out of the existing processes and structures. But there have also been some uh, attempts at pushing for 
changed through legislative measures as well. And I think we'll see more of that moving forward. And do you think, I mean, this is just your opinion, but we haven't seen much in the way of legislative anything so far in the Trump administration. We've seen a whole bunch of executive orders. Do you think that Congress is going to get to do anything in the foreseeable future? This is an interesting question with immigration broadly. You know, there are a number of failed attempts at getting some comprehensive immigration reform done during the Obama administration. And for folks that were looking at immigration issues through the lens of artists, artist visas, it was a frustration because what we were told was if something's going to happen on artist issues, it's going to be tied into this bigger piece of comprehensive immigration reform. And so when that failed and failed and never went anywhere, that meant that the chances for getting stuff done on artist-specific issues failed as well. What's changed is that in this new Congress, I think nobody has any hope or expectation that anything's going to move on comprehensive immigration reform. And as a result, there's an ability to look at some of the standalone smaller issues like the artist visa stuff on its own. So we actually might be in more of a position to move something on this issue than we might have in the past, which is, you know, I guess ironic because this is like an administration that has shown such hostility to people from other countries. But there might be an opportunity here. Well, that's a positive note. So I think we better end there because I don't want to go down another rabbit hole. Kevin Erickson, thank you so much for joining us today on The Future of What? Thanks again for having me. It's always a pleasure. was Riff Dad by Kinski. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a comment. It really helps. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Matthew Covey of Thomas Dot. Matthew, welcome to The Future of What. Excellent. Thank you. Cool. So we are talking to you today because of the recent just everything that's been in the news with, you know, South by Southwest, which happened two weeks ago, artists being turned away and sent back home. What's his name? Trump. <laughs> I was like, what's that guy in the White House? <laughs> uh, Trump's attempts to, you know, create travel bans. There have been, been a lot of things in the news lately. So we thought we should speak to you guys because Tommy's Dot has been around for several years now. You guys started in 98, correct? Right. Yep, that's correct. And you want to just tell us a little bit about what the organization does? Sure. Thomas Dot started in, in the late 90s, yeah, in 98. The original purpose, I was in a band that was based in Slovakia in the 90s and was very involved with a lot of the music scene that was growing there after the wall came down. And 
developed a lot of relationships with a lot of the artists there. And, and when the band that I was in relocated back to the U.S., naturally we were really wanting to help the nascent indie scene of Central and Eastern Europe develop contacts and audiences in Western Europe and in the U.S. And that played out in a whole bunch of different projects that we undertook. Initially, we were doing showcases at South by CMJ and Popcom back when that used to exist in Germany, trying to develop distribution channels for a lot of the, the music that these artists were creating. A lot of the indie labels that were getting themselves started in the 90s had distribution within their own countries, but at that time, physical distribution outside of Central European countries was really hard. And so one of the main first projects we undertook was to set up a distribution system based in Prague that was that had a catalog based on about 150 indie record labels throughout Central and Eastern Europe that we were doing distribution for. So we did a lot of different things. And as the internet became more the way that, that distribution was being handled initially, through internet distribution of physical products, physical CDs, and then eventually through streaming, it became increasingly clear that most of the work that we were doing to help those artists develop new audiences, well, there were other people who were doing a better job than, than we could do as larger players became involved with, with Central and Eastern Europe. But the piece that nobody was really addressing was that if you want to get an artist into the U.S. to tour to support their records, that the cost of getting artists into the U.S. was extremely high and people were not having very much luck doing it. So indie bands were really having trouble getting into the U.S. and couldn't afford to hire generally law firms to do that for them. So sort of without meaning to, we kind of got into the process of figuring out how to do that in as legal but inexpensive way. And so as some of the other projects that we took on, we kind of shed as, as other people started doing a good job with them that the handling U.S. immigration in an affordable fashion kind of became the focus of, of our work. So by 2001, when suddenly U.S. immigration became a lot more complex following 9-11, we were positioned pretty well to start handling immigration issues, not just for the artists that we were working with from Central and Eastern Europe, but artists from all over the world who were starting to have more and more problems getting to the U.S. So we kind of reimagined ourselves to primarily work on immigration issues and to continue to try to work on how to keep the U.S. accessible to independent artists. That was the, the basis of it. Thomas Dot continued up through the aughts, but through that process, it became increasingly clear that by the late 2000s, it became pretty clear that a lot of the work that we were doing, as the process became harder and harder, it became clear that the work that we were doing would probably be better able to be done by a law firm than as a nonprofit. So about five years ago, we started the process of spinning off a law firm off from the, from the nonprofit. So the fees were the same, the staff was the same, but it started functioning as a law firm instead, which freed up Thomas.Dot to continue working primarily as an advocacy group. So on a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, we launched a pro bono visa problem hotline for performing artists who had problems with visas. And we undertook a, a pretty major research project into developing a platform of reform that we are working on toward trying to improve the process and make it more transparent and more efficient in the hopes that the costs that artists experience when they're coming to the U.S., which are, you know, there's a lot of them involved with, with visas. There's, you know, government fees and there's union fees, but the largest fee being generally the legal fees and trying to figure out. So we were trying to figure out how to, how to keep the, the complexity of the process down so that the need for lawyers would be minimized. So that's sort of where we are now. 
and primarily the work that Thomasnet does is advising people on when they need visas, when they don't, and when they get stuck somewhere in the process, how to get them through that, and, and then sort of the, the beyond that, the advocacy work of trying to make the process easier. So my understanding about the situation surrounding South by Southwest is that, and I'm assuming also just to make this even more complex, that it probably differs from territory to territory, from country to country. Yeah, a bit, but with the exception of the travel ban and the way that sort of played out, for the most part, the process is the same for artists from anywhere. It just kind of the, the level of scrutiny is higher if you're from North Korea than if you're from, you know, Scotland. Gotcha. But the laws are the laws are pretty much the same. Well, why don't you walk us through what the law actually says? Like, what what is it that artists really have to do in order to come to America? There's a simple answer to that, and then there's an extraordinarily long and complex answer to it, which is probably beyond the scope of a, of a podcast. But basically, the analysis that we try to lead people through is that if you are a performing artist and you're coming to the U.S. to perform, you start from the assumption that you have to have an employment visa, that you, which is generally a P or an O visa. And you look for a handful of exceptions. You, there's, there are about 12 different exceptions to that rule. They're really, really narrow. And if you try to figure out if what you're doing in the U.S. falls within one of those exceptions, and if it does, then the hope is that legally you don't need to have a work visa. You might be able to come on, on ESTA or the Leap Visa Waiver Act, which is available to people from mostly from EU countries, um, a few other countries as well. Or if you're not coming from one of those countries, you might if if you're what you're doing in the U.S. falls within one of those exceptions, you probably can come in under a B1 or a B2 tourist visa. So the the complexity and the issues and a lot of the problems that surround South by Southwest relate to the the specifics of those exceptions and whether they apply or not. And so, for example, in a case like Soviet Soviet, which got an awful lot of press for having gotten turned away, the problem the Soviet Soviet ran into is they knew that they were allowed or believed rather that they were allowed to play an event like South by Southwest without having a work visa. And then they did their own little analysis to say, well, we've got some other shows too, but we're not getting paid for those. So we don't need a visa for that as well. And that's where the problem came in because there is no exception in us law that says if you're not getting paid, you don't need a visa. That's, that's not the law. That was something artists that the Soviet Soviet made up and, and a lot of artists also believe that, but that's actually not how that exception works. The exception that is applicable to South by Southwest is, is a little bit complex and it's a little bit counterintuitive, but it's really important that people understand how it works. Basically, it's referred to as the showcase exception. That's not a legal phrase, but it's just sort of how people in, in the immigration industry and the music industry have come to call it. And the showcase exception carves out this little area in the law that says if the reason that you're coming to the U.S. and the reason that you're performing is more for the sake of doing an audition than for entertaining people, then someone's, then often what that situation is is considered a bona fide industry showcase. And that's something that you can do on a tourist visa or on, on a visa waiver. So the, the best way to think about it and the way I tried to describe it, although it's a little complex, is basically if the principal purpose that the audience is in attendance is not for the sake of being entertained, but for the sake of considering employing the artist at a future date, then that it can be classified as a showcase, and that's something you don't need a, a work visa for. Um, that's very distinct from what people often say is it's a promotional event. I'm, I'm just playing a promo show. I'm not getting paid for it. Well, a promo show doesn't matter. Because this promo show is probably directed at the general public. You're playing you know, a, a show. You're not planning to make money, but you know, 
a radio station maybe covering it and and you're just trying to maybe you're opening for a larger band somehow you're trying to somehow raise your profile well that you need a work visa for it's only if the audience is principally people in the industry who are there to consider whether they want to work with you which is why south by has generally been considered one of these events but you can see how that's a little bit gray area because a lot of people are going to South by to have barbecue and drink a lot of beer and have a really good time. <laughs> so, so South by has always sort of been a little bit, and I think CMJ to a certain extent has always been a little bit on the edge of whether the showcase exception applies. But so far, for the most part, Homeland Security and the State Department have taken the stand that artists who are bound for South by, bound for Austin, and they are only playing South by Southwest official events, but that's a showcase and you're fine to do that. Every year, there's a couple of artists who get turned away by a Customs and Border Protection officer who reads the law differently. But for the most part, that's pretty consistent. And that was pretty consistent this year. Most of the artists who got turned away got turned away because an officer determined that they were doing something besides just playing an official South by Southwest showcase event. So there's a lot of different exceptions. There's a lot of different situations where an artist doesn't need a work visa. And each of them has a bunch of different elements to it. But there's an exception that applies sometimes when an artist is coming to record. There's an exception that applies sometimes when an artist is coming to do an event that's paid for by their home country. There's an exception that applies sometimes in a case when an artist is coming to perform as part of a competition. All of these, uh, there's another exception that applies sometimes when an artist is coming to perform at a university as part of an academic program. Each of these exceptions has a bunch of different elements. So it's, well, paying audience or you can't have a paying audience. Or if you're recording for a U.S. label, you need a visa, but you don't need a visa if you're recording for a foreign label. So in each of these situations, it's best to get some advice about what are the specifics of Never assume until you really dig into the, the details of the law. Never assume that you don't need a visa to come to the U.S. It's always best to make sure you understand exactly why it is. Because when you arrive in the U.S., you're going to have to explain that to a customs and border protection officer. So if you're, you know, if you're pushing a Marshall stack and you've got three guitars and you're arriving at JFK and you say, no, 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 officer, it's okay. I don't need a visa to do this thing I'm going to be doing. That officer might well say, well, looks to me like you're playing some things. So unless you can explain to me exactly why it is that you don't need a work visa, then I'm going to put you on a plane and send you home. So in every situation, there's sort of two parts to it. First, legally, is there an exception that applies? And second, are you able to articulate and prove to a suspicious officer why that exception should be applying? And so can you tell us roughly what is the cost of a, a work visa for an artist coming into the U.S.? Sure. It really varies a lot on how much advanced time you, you've got. But basically, there's a government filing fee and that applies to the act. So if you're an orchestra it applies if you're a singer-songwriter. It applies to how many people. It doesn't matter how many people. But the government filing fee per act is $460. In most cases, the artist is going to need to have the petition that's being filed reviewed by a U.S. labor union. It's usually the American Federation of Musicians. And they charge usually $250 to review the petition and say, yeah, it's okay if this artist comes and, and, and issue what's called a consultation. So that's another $250. That's all that's absolutely necessary. Oftentimes, people hire agencies or attorneys to help prepare the petitions. And for those, people get charged anything from probably $800 up to $5,000, depending on how much the, the agency or lawyer that you're working with charges. 
certainly 5,000 seems like an awful lot to be charging for the amount of work being done, but there are firms that do that. Is $800 is a really good deal. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind. And then in terms of the timing, the government processes these petitions at two speeds. There's the usually slow regular processing speed, and there's the fast and expensive premium processing speed. Up until a few months ago, regular processing ran at about three months, and the premium processing ran at about two weeks. So most people got stuck paying the $1,225 premium processing expediting fee. Right now, the processing rate for regular processing has dropped down to more like three weeks. So a lot of people are being able to avoid the premium processing fee right now. Wow, that's expensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so all in, you're talking $460 for the filing fee, probably $250 for the union fee, anywhere from $800 to $5,000 for hiring somebody to help you with it, and another $1,200 or so if you need it done quickly. Wow. Then there's another fee that gets charged actually at the embassies. This one doesn't apply to Canadians, but for everybody else, the embassy charges $190 per person to actually physically issue the visa into their passports. Wow. That's crazy. So yeah, it's a big cash outlay. Yeah, no, it's crazy. It's an awful lot of money that goes into it. The visas themselves can last, if it's a band, can last for up to a year. If it's a solo artist, can last for up to three years. So it's really important if you're going to spend all that money to make sure that you're getting the longest possible duration you can just so you don't have to do this over and over again. I mean, it makes us really sad when an artist comes and says, yeah, I just need a visa for, I got some shows, I got a week of shows in June, and then they come back. And so we get a visa for them that lasts to cover those shows, and then they come back three months later and say, oh yeah, I got another tour in the fall, can we do it all over again? And then all the fees are going to apply again, and that's, that's a nightmare. Wow. So do you have any resources to share for listeners that might be helpful? There's a couple of really good resources that are available to artists out there, especially artists who, for example, have a label or manager who wants to not have to pay somebody to do it for them. There's a website that was funded by the National Endowment for the Arts, which is a really, really great source of information about how to prepare and file a petition. It's called www.artistsfromabroad.org. It's very up-to-date and really authoritative. And then Thomas.Runs a hotline. So if you're an artist who's trying to do it on your own, you don't have an attorney helping you, and something goes wrong, we have uh, volunteer attorney time 24 hours a day, seven days a week, ready to take calls for people who've gotten stuck. And that's through our website at Thomas.Runs. If you go onto our website and click on Thomas.Avail, the Avail hotline is there to, to provide free legal assistance to help people through whatever's going on with the process. And it could be anything from you got your visa denied at the embassy and you don't know what to do, or it could be, you know, you've arrived at the border and they let everybody through except for the drummer. What do you do? <laughs> there'll be somebody to help you figure out how to solve the problem. Well, awesome. That's so cool that you guys have done all this work to help artists. So thanks on their behalf. Sure. Thanks so much. I really appreciated talking to you. Cool. Thanks very much.
That was New Life by Numbers. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Shireen Ammer of Massive Scar Era. Shireen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me today. So we are talking to you today because there was a big kerfuffle this year at South by Southwest, even though a lot of bands are turned away at the border each year. I mean, you know, it happens. It's not infrequent in past years. This year, your band was turned away at the U.S. border trying to cross in from Canada to play your South by Southwest showcase. But your situation was a little bit different. Can you give us an overview of what was different about your denial? Well, we had a business visa, as usual. When we play South by Southwest, we applied for a business visa. And we were granted this visa. And for some reason, the officer at the border just wasn't convinced that we should be playing South by Southwest under this visa. And I think this is only the... Like, this is the only way how he can stop us from getting in is just, you know, like, try to accuse us that we didn't get the correct visa. And we pull out records. We we told them we played this show before under this visa. And uh, no matter how hard and how much I tried to explain that, they didn't really want us to be in. And right in the middle of the conversation, the officer told me, well, you know, people are using the festival to protest. And... I thought that this comment is really out of, like, I don't know from where it came. Like, it came out of the blue. It wasn't you. Like, we were talking about my visa. Why did you mention that in the middle of the conversation? And moreover, my basis is First Nation. So he's Aboriginal and he has the official Indian card status mm-hmm. issued from the Canadian government. And that's even a bigger problem because according to the law, he if even if we are going to cross the border to work, and to get paid, he should have been let in since he has his card, you know. And the officer told him, <laughs> well, he told him, well, you're welcome. You're welcome to enter the United States wherever you want and you're allowed to work. But next, but in order to cross, you have to like present the DNA test. A DNA test? Yeah, it's like quantum blood, something like that. Like, basically, he offended him so much. Like, he treated this card as if it's like a, a candy or a transit card, you know. Like, it's, a, it's just, it was so politically wrong in on many levels wow yeah and dylan yeah and Dylan and dylan looked at him he's like i am first nation i <laughs> i have an official card that says that and don't you just go through this process anyway to get this and he he told him well i don't know maybe your tribe is different oh. it, it was yeah it was just brutal you know and dylan he had his canadian passport and he had the card wow you guys have crossed into America before without problems. Yes, of course. If you even if you look at the immigration process, like on the website of the Canadian Immigration, what it says that if you're entering to do business conferences, like to do business meetings, blah blah blah, and you're not going to get paid, you're allowed to because we're technically we're not employed. Nobody is is employing us. We we aren't getting paid. Right. And we have an official invitation from the South by Southwest. And they know, like they know everything about us. They know that we've crossed the borders 
on this visa before. They know that. And I told them, I told them, look, you have everything on your record. You know that we, when we applied for this visa, you know that we were going to play South by Southwest. If no, it doesn't show. I'm like, oh, come on. I mean, last time, no, nah, nah, that's, that's, that's a lie. Because last time I crossed the border, the guy knew that I speak French. And I haven't spoken French with him at all. He's like, oh, and you went for, we went to a French school. I'm like, how did you know that? <laughs> Because they know everything. <laughs> because they know everything. So, so, so don't give me this uh, fake uh, information that you that you don't know that I am go- that I've played before under this visa. They know everything. Now this is interesting. So when was the last time that you crossed the border successfully prior to the South by Southwest attempt? To play a show or just for a visit? To play a show. That was last South by Southwest. Actually, it was in 2015. And did you come across, where Where did you guys try to cross the border? Was it in Washington State? Uh, yeah, from Seattle. From Seattle. So, yeah. I mean, to me, the red flags here, and we've been talking about this a lot on this episode, are that the Trump administration's new policies towards immigration have clearly had specific results, even though they have not resulted in the travel ban that they want. Yeah. It yeah. clearly has changed the culture. Because yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. So I, I mean, yeah. you know. I mean, <laughs> well, like whenever we, so let's state some facts. If you have a Muslim last name, even before Trump administration, you, especially the boys, they would stop them. Like my husband has Abdul Salam in his last name, and whenever he crosses, although he's he's Canadian, he was born in Canada, they stop him. But they're like they they do like. Uh, like what they call random tech. I don't know how random it is, if it's just repetitive. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, like they ask a few questions and they let him go. And even in South by Southwest, when we were crossing, they asked him. And before that, when we played South by Southwest, before in 2012, I think, we had an American, actually, citizen called uh, Yusuf Ahmed. And just because he has Ahmed in his last name, they hold him for like an hour and a half and he kept screaming at them. This is my country. I can come in and come out wherever I want. What are you doing? And stuff like this. So it's it's been there, but it wasn't that intense. They would hold you, uh, maybe. But if you have the correct paper, you would be in, you know? Right. And it's fascinating because you, you are from Egypt. You were born in Egypt. Yeah. But you live in Canada. And you're married to a Canadian. I'm married to a Canadian Egyptian. So he also, he's, he's, uh, he's, <laughs> he's brown, you know, <laughs> he's like, he's brown. Right. Like, they would pull him out. You yes. Know, like. Let's get this straight. <laughs> he's brown. Yeah. Therefore. <laughs> he's really brown. He's problems. extremely brown. <laughs> yeah. But that's interesting because, you know, I think people, I think, I don't know. I don't, I give up. I don't know what average Americans think, but I do think that people don't generally think of there being issues with people from Canada entering the U.S. You know, I think that's not the the fear. That's not where their fear is located, but it seems like oh. it doesn't matter. Yeah, but I had a friend of mine. I had a friend of mine. She's a woman and she's a woman uh, with color and she was born in Canada. So she has a Canadian passport. She was crossing the border and the guy told her, you have to go and apply for a visa. I was like, what are you saying? I am just going to Seattle to do shopping. Like, yeah, you have to go get a visa. Get a visa from what? I'm a Canadian citizen. And he just refused to let her in, you know? It's comical. So even though... Yeah, even though you are Canadian and you were born in Canada, just because you're a person of color, they can stop you. And we need to acknowledge and admit that because throughout this whole trauma, like I've lived, like I've lived in this trauma for the 
like the passing of months or something. Mm-hmm. So people are denying in a way that there are issues. They don't want to honestly say that, that there is a racial profile on the borders. And people who are more privileged, they just don't want, like they keep comparing our their experience to ours. I get banned with all like white people. They're saying, oh, well, we cross the border anytime. I'm like, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you have to just be aware of the situation. It's just, it's, it, it just pissed me off more, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you moved here. I mean, you moved to Canada because you wanted to be a musician. I mean, you yeah. wanted to make it in the music industry. Yes. So my band, Massive Car Era, has been active from 2005. And I think we have done a very good job in attracting the metalheads in the Middle East. We have toured a lot of places in Europe. We played in the States. Back in the days, <laughs> but we 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 weren't like we couldn't find a, a record labels or booking agents that are interested to work with us because of where we are. It just for them, it just would be crazy to just sign a band that is miles and miles away, you know. And with the amount of censorship and problems that we faced in Egypt, it just didn't make any sense to work like it just wasn't convenient like if I were in their place I would have also hesitated to put money in a band that is like I can tomorrow find them in jail for playing the music they do Mm, yes so I decided just to take a positive step towards my career and just move here to be able to navigate through the industry and I'm like I'm here I am just two hours away from you guys and uh, I was very optimistic yeah right and you've lived there in Canada for how long did you say for two years. For two Almost years. two years now. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And and this is definitely a very discouraging turn of events for you if if coming into the U.S. is a big part of of your plan for yeah. career, which I think is, you know, the, the point of this whole show is to talk about artists, helping artists have careers. And it is a really interesting issue, this idea of not even being able to get into the U.S. to try to have a career, you know? Yes, of course. I think also because Canada doesn't have a lot of record labels, especially like we de- we we definitely have funding opportunities. But at this point, if you want to make living off of being a metalhead, like metal musician or rock musician, like um, you wouldn't rely so much on the grants. You you would want to be actively in contact with your fans and growing your fans and be sustainable without any help from the government. You know what I mean? And like in Canada, there are no record labels that would be interested in signing new bands in a way. And I was, I had a list of people that I wanted to meet in the U.S. in order to discuss the band and our sound and how we can promote it and stuff like this. And, and now I feel like I did this whole move for nothing in a way. Mm, yeah. Well, I wouldn't give up quite yet. I mean, there, there there definitely are record labels in the U.S., I think, from my label position who are, you know, one of the great things about Canada is that they do have funding and that that's very attractive to American record labels to know that there will be some funding involved. Yeah. You know, if they get involved with a, a Canadian artist. So oh, yeah. I definitely think it's you, you shouldn't give up. Really? Yeah. Because I feel that, you know, how the labels work, they have their own networks and, you know... I always feel that they'd be discouraged if they sign us and then they would help us get a tour and then pay for everything for the tour and then we stopped at the border. That would be very devastating for them. That's that's my that's what I'm I, I think of. That's this is how I think about it, you know. 
Well, I I agree, but it also, you know, I feel like this immigration issue, the, the best part about this whole stupid travel ban idea is that it's really shining a spotlight on immigration right now. And yeah. I mean, it sounds like, for example, that customs official that you guys spoke to was, you know, someone who's actually got their own biases. And hopefully this mm. this kind of spotlight will start weeding those people out because that's just not it's you know I mean if you have all your paperwork in order yeah and you have an invitation from the festival yeah. there's no reason you shouldn't be allowed yeah. to go to the festival and so mm. hopefully that will not happen as much in the future I mean fingers crossed of course it could go the yeah. other direction and we could shut down all our borders and we could become a totally oh, no. <laughs> fascist protectionist country in which case I wouldn't worry about your music career anyway because <laughs> none of us will have there'll be nothing going on <laughs> But I guess we'll just wait and see. That's my positive note to end this on, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and maybe maybe the good thing is that when this happens to us, the, the musicians start to look more in their rights to understand more. Exactly. Uh, what they're actually allowed to and not allowed to because they were like false understanding on how musicians can cross. The Canadians, yes. they thought they just, you know, they had to have certain stuff with them and they turn to their union right away and the union just doesn't tell them the truth is that they can just cross the border because they want they want their money you know right <laughs> yeah so they're like the canadians just don't think about it that much they go to the union and just do it with them and they, i think even if they want to work with the union they would they have to know what are their rights according to the law you know interesting yes shireen amr it's been a pleasure to have you with us today on the future of what Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Dollar by Erase Arata. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Ami Dang. Ami, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. So you are from Baltimore, but you are of Indian descent. Mm-hmm. That's correct. And your music definitely reflects your cultural heritage. <laughs> <laughs> which is awesome. It sounds really cool. Thanks. And we we initially wanted to have you on the show because we are doing a show about the South by Southwest issues that people had getting into the country. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting about that is that there are always people who are turned away every year who are trying to get in at South by Southwest. Yep. And it's generally because they got the wrong type of visa. You know, there was actually an error on their right. on their end. But this year, it seemed like it was a little bit different. It seemed like there might be 
something more going on. And the whole Trump attempts to create these travel bans seem to have just changed the culture a little bit where maybe there's more to just you don't have the right paperwork coming into the country. So I know that you've been vocal about this. I wondered if you had a take on that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so far, I've been pretty vocal about the fact that I definitely object to the travel ban or as many are calling it. it I, I also see it as a Muslim ban. I do think the president is targeting the religion of Islam everywhere and not just ISIS. And uh, it's really unfortunate and really sad that it's affecting musicians among, I mean, among all kinds of people, but I know in particular we're talking about music. It's affecting people and musicians, you know, it's affecting them in the way that they can't do what they're trying to do. They can't make their livelihood, which is by playing music and playing really amazing festivals and getting these opportunities like South by Southwest and there may be others this spring that people are trying to play that people can't get to. And, I, you know, it's hard. And as you mentioned, a lot of musicians already have a really hard time getting to the U.S. because of visa issues. I know it's, you know, promoters also, they might not want to deal with it. So it might be harder to actually get the shows booked and all of that. But I know that it's just causing total chaos and really preventing people from getting through and, you know, and the ultimately the result is, is that as as an audience and as people who are both culture producers and sort of people who are taking in culture, I mean, I'm a culture producer as well as somebody who really enjoys experiencing music. We're just going to not be experiencing as much of a diverse music scene here in the U.S. as we would be able to otherwise, which I think is a terrible shame, you know. Absolutely. And I, I really see this as something that could affect the next generation of music and sort of the the sound palette that we're going to hear around us. And if we can't have people coming from, and not only these countries, but, you know, if people are detained just because they look brown and because they're coming from the Middle East, which is what the TSA is doing, I mean, it's clear that people are being targeted who aren't even from these countries. Or, I mean, people, it seems like, too, I know a lot of musicians who are based here and maybe we're born in some of in one of the seven countries, Iran, for example. There's some Iranian musicians who canceled a tour because they're worried about leaving the U.S. and not mm. being able to come back in. Right. So yeah. it's really affecting people's livelihoods in a more immediate sense. And but the downstream effects are that you know culturally we're not going to be as influenced by the music from those cultures as we may otherwise. And we don't, I mean, we don't really even know like how that could affect us culturally, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And then in the U.S., living in the U.S., what has the impact been of these? I mean, they haven't gone through. They're really more like um, theoretical travel bans. Right, right. (laughs) Thank God. But what have you seen in your community in terms of the effects of this rhetoric? I mean, already, I I think this happened after 9-11 for a lot of, people of both Middle Eastern and South Asian descent, and I think it's happening again, is just severe discrimination on the behalf of the TSA and then also, I mean, others who support Trump. But there's already been so much discrimination and it's already clear that that is really affecting how, you know, every step of the process. It's not literally just getting through customs or, you know, getting through an airport check, but like I said, it's it's also just harder for promoters to do their job, for people to travel freely. I know for me, I play music and I play the sitar, which is an Indian classical instrument. And whenever I fly anywhere with my sitar, I am always very, very nervous about 
how that is going to be handled and then how, you know, what TSA, for example, would do with my sitar because they are not used to dealing with that. And it's very foreign looking to them. I know there was an artist a few years ago, a flautist from, he's a Canadian musician, but he plays these very rare flutes. I think his name is Bujima. I'm totally going to butcher this, so I'm sorry. But <laughs> Bujima Rosky, who was um, traveling from Europe to the U.S. to do a tour, and his 13 flutes that are made out of bamboo were destroyed by the TSA because they were considered agricultural product. Obviously, you know, what's happened more recently, you know, the incidents are multiplying in the, you know, in the past six weeks or so, two months, I guess it's been, you know, these incidents are definitely multiplying, but there's always been a culture of hostility toward, I think, people of brown origin, you know, from people from the Middle East and from South Asia, and that's only going to continue to get worse. So, well, I agree. And Ami Dang, thank you so much for joining us today on The Future of What? Thank you so much. was Kissed by the Fire by Ami Dang. If you're looking for more in-depth interviews and music news, we think you'll like the Modern Vinyl podcast. Modern Vinyl combines the colorful conversations overheard at your neighborhood record store with insightful criticism that goes beyond the surface noise. Check it out at modern-vinyl.com and find the show on your favorite podcast app by searching Modern Vinyl Podcast or through jabberjawmedia.com. Upcoming episodes include interviews with the likes of Jay Som and Plumtree, along with discussions on the Vagrant Records catalog, their annual Record Store Day awards show, and the conclusion of their Revisiting the Smiths series. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Kinski, Numbers, Eraserata, Ami Dang, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. 
subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website on killerrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.